Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 108, the myositis uh, screening um, for cancer guidelines with Alex Oldroyd. Um, I'm excited to have Dr. Oldroyd to the podcast today to discuss this very important recent consensus-based guideline project that outlined how the um, this International Myositis Assessment Clinical Studies Group, IMAX, how they recommend that we screen these folks for cancer, which is a big issue and I think something that's highly clinically relevant for anyone who treats patients with myositis. So i um, excited to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for being on here, Dr. Oldred. Great. Thank you. Well, thank, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Mike. It's a pleasure yeah. to be here. Yeah, no, so you're the lead author on this study. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're coming from and your clinical practice? Yeah, sure. So I'm a clinical lecturer. I'm a rheumatologist based in the UK. And um, I do half my time clinical work, half my time research work. And, um, you know, the the reason that we actually decided to do this project was uh, because, you know, we've all been there in clinic. You know, we get a patient with myositis, new onset. You know, we think, oh, cancer, we need to look for it. How do we identify someone's risk according to their specific profile of clinical features? How, how do we screen for it? How do we, how often do we screen for it? And this is what we really wanted to answer some of these questions in this in this paper. Yeah, I love it. It's a very relevant and important topic. Now, for that end, um, there's a couple of things that these guidelines have that I thought were pretty reasonable and that stuff that I've always done in my clinical practice. You know, the first is no screening for children. I think people under the age of 18 are generally at a pretty low risk of cancer, and I think that would be a little bit aggressive. So following age-appropriate screens is obviously good recommendations. I always do that, especially among people who have another risk factor for malignancy, such as myositis. Um, they recommend testing for myositis-specific antibodies, which I love. I always do that in people who have suspected myositis. Basic screenings. And then they identify some high-risk features that I think are pretty reasonable. Things like TIF1 gamma positivity, which is a very strong risk factor for malignancy. NXP2 dermatomyositis, having an older age, or ulcerative cutaneous disease and refractory disease, both of which are sort of disease factors associated with higher risk. But, you know, for these guidelines podcasts, I always like to ask a little more of the controversial, more interesting things that I saw. And so my first question for you, um, Dr. Oldroyd, is, you know, your enhanced screening regimen was pretty reasonable. They said, if you have these high-risk features, we're going to recommend this enhanced screening, do pan-CT, you know, cervical ovarian mammography as indicated, things like that. But they also said PSA testing, and I, this is where I start to get worried about screening writ large. I'm quite skeptical of PSA testing in general. And then um, I just haven't seen a whole lot of prostate cancer associated with myositis. Maybe that's a more common thing than I realize, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on PSA screening in general, and then some of the inclusions here more broadly. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's it, it's it's a great point to bring up about PSA screening. So we know that on a population level in the general population, um, PSA screening is slightly problematic. Does identifying a raised PSA level, does that confer improved outcomes? Does it cause undue harm? I would say that this is a very different context. So this is a this is a population in which you know, men with myositis who are older have a much higher risk of cancer. Prostate cancer is one of the cancers we see on registries. Obviously, the profile of cancers may vary by different countries and different cohorts as well. 
So I would say that if you have a patient who is an older man, has a higher risk of cancer, maybe they have TIF1 positivity. If you do a PSA, which is negative, that's reassuring. Um, if you do a PSA that's you know very highly positive, without any other feature of cancer, it may prompt you to go and look for prostate cancer. Um, would that necessarily be a cancer that's driving a myositis? That's difficult to know. And you know these these sort of questions that this guideline raises creates a research agenda, uh, so we can go ahead and answer these questions, and then in years to come amend the guidelines once we have more evidence. So I would say that, you know, overall, these guidelines are driven by evidence. There's a meta-analysis that I published a couple of years ago, uh, from which the guidelines were inspired. The expert group that included 75 experts from 22 different countries and three patient partners uh, developed the guidelines. So they were inspired by evidence. They um, were overall a consensus guideline. Mm -hmm. So... Oh, sorry. So, 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 so overall, you know, I'd say that I would encourage people to consider doing PSA testing. Um, and I, th I think just one other point as well. So you mentioned about CT scanning, mm -hmm. uh, surface screen mammography, PSA, CA125. Um, this all fits into patients should still continue to participate in their country or region specific age and sex appropriate cancer screening. And, you know, we want these guidelines to be applicable across different countries, different health systems. Mm -hmm. So it might be that some patients, they don't ever get um, certain screening done. And we want this guideline to prompt that as well. Yeah, and I think that certainly for people who have more risk factors, you're more likely to have benefit. I, I come at this as a screening skeptic, um, just to mm -hmm. give listeners a quick background. So one way to look at this, and this isn't necessarily the right way, and this is a very controversial way of doing statistics like this, but is to think of a number needed to treat and a number needed to harm for, for a medical intervention. And the, the, the number needed to treat and number needed to harm for screening studies is, is remarkably poor. So PSA testing, you know, there've been at least three big randomized controlled trials that were kind of a wash. So the number needed to treat is probably infinite maybe um, to save one life. Number needed to harm is five. So every five people you test, you screen one. Now, but that's in the background of a population that's less selected. So for people who have a much higher cancer risk, you know, there's a point at which the number needed to treat starts to tick upwards, you know? And so I, I do wonder about that for patients with myositis. I'd say older gentlemen with other risk factors, I've, you know, they, they can see PSA doesn't being useful. And I mean, this is kind of a critique writ large for screening though. I mean, a lot of screening studies, mammography is remarkably high in number needed to treat and um, remarkably low number needed to harm, but I don't want to get into that right now. So now I'm going to switch gears and um, completely contradict everything I just said, because I was giving you a hard time about being too aggressive. But I, I actually think that um, there's a there's a place here where we might be uh, not quite aggressive enough. And when I, my critiques of PSA testing are kind of flipped on their head when it comes to colonoscopy, which, you know, the number you treat for colonoscopy is still quite high. I think it's like 330 people. Um, but the flip side of colonoscopy is that you can intervene immediately. So you can actually cure the cancer with a relatively benign little snip. Maybe not so much for the kind of cancers that cause myositis, but um, you know, I think that it's a more favorable intervention. But your guidelines recommended fecal blood testing, um, even among patients at high risk of cancer. The thing is that I have seen a fair, as far as I haven't seen a ton of prostate cancer causing myositis, I've seen a fair number of colon cancers causing myositis. So what why why the reservation about being more aggressive for colon cancer screening? Yeah, so great, great question. This all has to do with the threshold of evidence that we used when developing this guideline. So many guidelines have different thresholds of evidence that they use. So some will say, well, you, know, you can only make a recommendation if you have 
RCT level evidence. Other other guidelines may say, you know, um, smaller studies, even considering bias, you can still form a recommendation. Now, you'll notice that the recommendation on upper and lower GI endoscopy is conditional. So we say a clinician should consider upper and lower GI endoscopy. The reason is because um, in a literature review we've done, there's no evidence to say that there's any utility, any any benefit of doing colonoscopy in patients specifically with myositis. Upper and lower GI endoscopy obviously confers some potential risk as well, um, potentially more risk than the actual act of taking a blood test or testing for fecal occult blood. So that's and you know the, there's no right or wrong answer here when we're developing the guideline, and this is the this is what we settled on with the expert group. It might be that in a few years' time, once more evidence emerges, we may change this recommendation to be a strong, a strong one rather than a conditional. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty fair. It, it's worth noting that I think the Nordic study, which was probably the biggest um, randomized trial screening testing to date, was published kind of after I think y'all had finished most of your work. So it's always kind of unfair when you publish a guideline and then <laughs> immediately after a big practice change in RCT was published. So kind of bad luck. But I think that that's kind of what always happens. Just like the vasculitis guidelines, where they published the ANCA guidelines immediately before C5A inhibitors started coming to the market. So they, <laughs> it's just kind of tough and the way it is, you can't, we're working on making kind of living guidelines, but uh, you know, I think the way guidelines are structured today is, is pretty difficult. Um, all right, so let me let me kind of bring this together. And I, I sat back when I was reading these. I said to myself, you know, I, who is actually getting screening screening here? You know, and it it looks like at the end of the day, it's most all patients. So if you look at your flow chart, you know, people who um, you, you, there's sort of an, there's a high risk group and an intermediate risk group. I actually like the flow chart quite a bit. I recommend it, especially as a teaching purpose. So I've been using it with my fellows. I say, here, here are the people that you're worried about. Here are the people you're less worried about. And then I like that there's sort of concrete recommendations for what to do about that. I think it's very helpful as a practicing clinician. But then, you know, you take a step back and you say, now, who wouldn't get this extra screening testing based on this? And it's actually, it seems to me a relatively narrow slice of the population because the intermediate risk factors are, are even broader. You know, I think that people who wind up not being screened are people who maybe have are younger-ish with SRP, antisynthetase, connective tissue disease overlap, but pretty much everyone else winds up walking their way into to, to being screened. And that, that just feels overly broad to me. But again, I'm a bit of a screening skeptic. So I'd just like to hear you react to that. Um, do you think that y'all sort of set the bar for how many people you're over screening or under screening? How, where do you think you landed on that? And um, how, how do you think you fell there? <laughs> so I would say that there's, there's, there's overall, there's two purposes of screening. There's identifying a cancer, and then there's identifying that someone does not have cancer as well. So I'd say they're the, kind of the two purposes. And there's a lot of anxiety from clinicians and patients with cancer. So it might be that we do a, maybe what, what we could consider as too much screening in some patients. But if we're then identifying there's no cancer, we can draw a line under that. We can move on with therapy. We know that if someone's getting a relapse, for example, we're not ascribing that to an underlying cancer. We're not having to do repeated CT scanning in people who are who are younger, who don't need the radiation exposure. Um, what, what I would say is that, you know, if we look at our cohort of patients with myositis, a lot of them fit into a high risk group. 
So there's been there was an abstract I presented at the ACR, and there's also a another study that was published in um, from Slovenia, and a large proportion of their cohorts actually fit into the high risk group. And it looked like the cancer screening and the detection of cancers followed the distribution of the high, the intermediate, and the uh, standard risk group as well. So the next thing we need to do is we need to actually say right. In the real world, how does this actually yield cancers? How does it? How well does it identify cancers? How well does it rule out cancers? Which study, which um, investigations are giving us the highest yield? Are any of them causing harm? Are any of them um, not needed when we reiterate the guideline in future? So I would say, you know, this is a guidance. This isn't a rule. So for all the clinicians out there, when you're using this in clinical practice, you use this as a guidance. This isn't a rule book. I'd also say that, you know, that there's specialist centers in myositis. And if I'm being honest, this this guideline is the, the audience, we aren't primarily aiming it at them. We're aiming this at people who might see fewer patients with myositis, maybe only see one or two a year. And this gives a guidance, a framework in how to risk stratify, how to have that discussion with patients in terms of screening, the benefits and the risks, and how to identify cancer or identify that someone does not have cancer to move on with with treatment. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So one final question, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I think often guideline projects and bringing all these people together and putting all this work into it, one of the enduring legacies is identifying the next steps and the and really yeah. finding the holes in the literature and figuring out where, you, where you're headed after this. So um, you're a big part of this IMAX group, which I think is doing a lot of great work. So what next? What have you learned? So I think that one of the good things about this guideline is that it gives us a standard, a base from which to move. So we can standardize screening across different centers, different health systems. We can identify how well this works. We can identify where we need to improve. We can identify if this improves outcomes at all. Maybe it doesn't. We can identify if this causes undue harm. We can identify the uh, the cost-benefit um, ratio as well. So next, we're going to identify prospective cohort of patients to investigate this prospectively. And then in future, we'll look to integrate other emerging uh, approaches in cancer screening, such as liquid biopsy, integrating polygenic risk scores, for example, and, in, in, and including um, the next generation of imaging techniques as well. And one of the really important things that we need to investigate is to see how this works in countries that are resource rich and sources uh, and countries that don't have as much resources. Because cancer screening in you know, a myositis specialist center may have really easy access to a PET CT, for example, whereas other health systems may have no access to a PET CT. So screening is going to be very, very different in those countries and those different health, health systems. So it's important to identify how this then impacts outcomes in patients with uh, myositis. That's great. I think that's a really nice place to end. Um, I have to commend you for this effort. I would say that I am predisposed to be critical of guidelines and predisposed to be critical of screening. And I think you landed at a very reasonable place and a very useful place, which um, I think is something that I often wind up uh, finding troublesome about guidelines projects. They're not always as useful as I think they ought to be. And I thought I found these very useful. So um, thanks for the effort and thanks for coming on the podcast. Great. Thank, thank you. Th thanks, Mike.
Yeah. Um, for anyone who'd like to use these, I, I highly recommend them for educational purposes, especially, but even for your own reference. It was published in Nature Reviews Rheumatology in November of 2023. The title is International Guideline for Idiopathic Inflammatory Myopathy Associated Cancer Screening. It comes right up on Google if you search for it. Uh, thanks so much for everyone. I hope you found this useful. Um, thanks for tuning in and have a great day.